Welcome back to our study of the story as we look at what God is doing in the world and how your life intersects with that. So far we've seen that the Bible is like a mural that tells a single story. God is, is weaving his way through this story with his grand plan. We've seen that there's five acts that we're looking at. You can basically write them out on a napkin and we've seen that you have the, the tree or the garden that you start with. Then we see that God moves to building a nation. That's what we've been talking about last week, and, and we'll go into more today. Then we see that Jesus is going to come in, and God is going to do a work through him. And then the church comes in, and we're going to finish with a new garden city. Those are the five acts of the story. The story timeline that we're looking at, as we start in the beginning and we look at the Genesis timeline, is the beginning of time, creation, fall, flood, and Babel. That is what we've covered so far. Abraham is what we discussed last week, Genesis chapter 12 and following. And today we're going to get into the story of Joseph. So you can see in the blue part on the screen, the second one in Joseph. We've already covered creation, fall, flood, and Babel, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Just as a quick recap for you, we looked at creation, the beginning of life as we know it. God creates the whole universe. In that, he then he prepares prepares the land, the six days of creation for man to live there. And we looked at the creation, the image of creation that you see on the screen is that God had made the place for the man and the woman. Yeah, I've already passed this. This is our review. We're just flying. All right. The days of creation were created for the man. Creation image. Next one. For the man and the woman to be together and to be in the garden. And so God created and put them in the Garden of Eden. And so you can see from the map on the screen and what I'd ask you to do in your storybooks if you brought them with you this week, which I hope you did, is I'd ask you to open them up and put in there an approximate place where we think maybe the Garden of Eden was. But then we looked at the fact that things didn't go so well and there was a problem. There's a problem in Eden and they got kicked out. And the problems continued. And as God worked through his plan and these problems increased and um, multiplied, if you will, we then got to the story of a man named Noah in Genesis chapter 6. And I asked you also to take in your, your map and, and put on your map a picture of where the ark would be. And so you can see up there the blue little ark that I have at the top where Noah would have possibly disembarked. And so that covered the first 11 chapters, basically. Genesis 1 through 11 summarized creation, fall, flood, and Babel. And that led us up to what we discussed last week in God's promised plan. The promised plan which involved a man named Abraham. So Abraham was promised his main descendants is the stars in the sky. And as he looks at the sky in the night and sees the stars popping through the darkness, God says, that's how many descendants you're going to have. But as we saw last week, there was problems in this as well. And God told Abraham to go on a journey. And you can see the journey that he took on this map right here. And what I would like you to do is, on your map and your storybook also, to try to help you understand and review last week as, as we talked about it, let's plot the journey now. And so in this next slide, you'll see what I would like you to do. You can put a little man, you can see him, he's yellowish-greenish, okay? So in your, your books here, over in between Babylon, 
Babylon and Ur. You see where the Ur is? Okay, if you draw a little man there. And then you can see the dotted lines that go up. It would go up kind of to where on your book it says Aram, up above that area there. And then you're going to come on down to the area where it says Jerusalem. Now, I'm not quite sure why, but for some reason, when they put this map in here, they didn't actually put the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, and, and Dead Sea. I, I am clueless as to why they made that decision. But uh, you do have Jerusalem, and so make him come down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is right in the smack of the area of Canaan, and so that is where Abraham goes to. So we've seen in our, our game plan here that God has taken this man, and he sends him on a journey. We saw last week how he went. We saw the many, many obstacles that showed up in his plan along the way. The questions which are going to come up today again. Where are my descendants? Where's this nation? Are we going to stay in the land? Because almost immediately Abraham has to go. He goes to Egypt because of famine. So he's in and out of the land. So God's plan continues. His plan to build a nation. And that takes us this morning. story, you know what's happening. If not, we'll get to it. So the story of Joseph is what we will be looking at today. I want to start with Romans chapter 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 is a well-known scripture to most Christians. It says, we know that in all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And as we look at the story of Joseph today, many of you know the story, but most of you are not going to know some of the things that I am going to share with you that are in the scriptures that we miss when we only focus on the morality and the character of Joseph. There's many other things going on below the surface, the, the big picture of what's going on, the upper level and the lower level that we need to understand what's going on. And so this morning we look at dreams that divide. Because Joseph was a dreamer, because God gave him dreams. In the ancient Near East, dreams were often given by God to people, forms of revelation. He instructed them this way. Even in the New Testament, you'll see that uh, Joseph, a different Joseph, but Joseph, the wife of, I mean, Joseph was not a wife. Joseph, whose wife was Mary, um, has a dream which instructs him to take baby Jesus to Egypt. Many parallels with some Old Testament stories here. But dreams that divide. Because Joseph was a young man, a young man that was not completely mature. He was impetuous. He was, he was a young man that maybe was a little bit of a spoiled brat. You can all relate, right? And so that's probably a little bit how Joseph was. So when we think about Joseph, we're going to see his journey. A journey from this little spoiled brat to a young man who will rule over an entire nation as second in charge as prime minister of Egypt. When Joseph's story begins, 
which is in chapter 37 of your Bible. The scriptures will not be on the screen this morning. There are Bibles on your table, and we are going to cover some material that is not actually in the storybook, so you, you may need to reference the Bible as well. It says in chapter 37 of Genesis that Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And these are the family records of Jacob. And so here we have Jacob. They're in Canaan. They're in the promised land. This is where they're supposed to be. They're going to build a nation. They're supposed to increase in number. This is the land that God has for them. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. How old is he? 17. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. You would call him a what? A tattletale. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. You know this story, most of you. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than all of the other brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. This was a dysfunctional family. A dysfunctional family with four women. This is why you only marry one woman. Four women. Twelve sons from four different women. Okay? Lots of conflict. Conflict between the wives, conflict between the sons, conflict in the family, lots of it, probably constant conflict. But Israel, okay, Jacob is Israel, okay, his name was changed. He loved Joseph more, and so this favoritism is going to cause additional rifts in the family. This robe that he gives him, this is probably not just any kind of robe, his cloak, okay? This is a theme that comes through in this passage of Scripture multiple places. Most likely it is actually the sign that Joseph is going to receive the inheritance from God. Now you need to understand, there's 12 sons. Joseph is not the oldest son. Reuben is the oldest son. So normally Reuben should receive a double portion of the blessing and the blessing should continue on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Reuben. And so what you have to understand as we read this Joseph story is this is not just about Joseph. This is about who is going to get the blessing and who is going to be the one, the family line through whom the seed comes. Remember, there's a promise plan here. The promise plan includes a seed through which a Messiah from Genesis 3.15 is eventually going to come. What family is going to be continually blessed and eventually the Messiah will come through that family? Who is it going to be? Which of the 12 sons is going to have that blessing? That's what's going on in this passage of Scripture. And so as we look at our text, we see that this rift continues. They're not very happy with Joseph. We see that in verse 5, Joseph has a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There were, they were binding sheaves of grain in the field, and suddenly my sheep stood up, and your sheep gathered around and bowed down. In other words, he's saying, you guys are all going to bow down to me. I'm going to rule over you. And they're like, little brother, who you think you are? You ain't ruling over none of us. This causes additional conflict in the family. It wasn't just one time that he has a dream. He has a dream another time. Even his parents, he says, you're all going to end up bowing down to me. Do you think if your brothers told you this, you would respond any differently? Probably not. And so... Joseph is, to some degree, setting himself up for what's going to happen next. Are you really going to reign over us, they say in verse 8? 
In verse 9, he has another dream. In verse 12, it says, His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready, I'm sending you to them. I'm ready. Then Israel said, Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing. Now, last time he brought back a report. What kind of report was it? It was a bad report. He tattled on them. Yep. So, that, that might tell you something about the brothers, too. Maybe they're up to no good, right? But do they want to be told on? No, probably not. So what might be happening this time also? They might be up to no good. And he might tattle on them. And they might get in trouble, right? So look what happens. Verse 15. He's out wandering around in Hebron, in Shechem. And verse 15 says, A man found him there wandering in the field and said, What are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're pasturing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dolphins. So Joseph went out after his brothers and found them there. Now you just need to stop for just a minute. You just read a couple of verses. The verse I read in the beginning was Romans 8, 28. How is it that Joseph, wandering around, miles and miles and miles away from home, happens to be in a field where a man happens to be there also, and that same man happens to have seen his brothers earlier, and his brothers happen to have said where they're going next, and this man happened to have overheard them. Is that all happenstance? Or is there something going on behind the scenes? Is God's providence working behind the scenes here of what's going on? And so he moves on, he finds them, and verse 18 says, they saw him in a distance before he reached them, and they plotted to kill him. Yeah, they're happy to see him. They want to kill him. They see him in the distance. They see that coat. That coat reminds them that he's going to be the what? He's going to be the heir. He's going to get the inheritance. They're all jealous. They're all angry. They're envious. They kill him. That's what they want to do. Reuben hears this in verse 21. He tries to save him. He says, let's not take his life. Reuben also said, don't shed blood, throw him in the pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from their hands and return him to his father. That all sounds nice. Reuben's such a good guy. Except who is Reuben? What did Reuben do? Reuben is the oldest. He's already slept with dad's concubine. See, you have to know the rest of the story. And why did he do that? Well, you do that to try to take over the family line to diss your dad and take over. So Reuben actually has been disqualified. Is daddy going to give him the blessing now? No, he's not. So we look at this and we're oh, Reuben is such a good guy. But what is most likely happening is Reuben is trying to save face and get that blessing back. The oldest is supposed to get a double portion. Plus you got the inheritance, the additional blessing on top of that. So when Joseph comes to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. They took him and threw him in the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Just so you know, he doesn't drown. Then they sat down to eat a meal. They're eating a meal. Joseph is in the pit. The next time they will eat a meal in the presence of Joseph will be when they go to Egypt because they have no food. And Joseph is the prime minister. That will be the next time they eat in the presence of Joseph. They looked up, and here's a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels were carrying all sorts of things. And Judah then says to his brothers, verse 26, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. His brothers agreed. Here's 
sell him. Selling him is just another form of killing him. Once you sell him to the Ishmaelites, he's going to end up a slave and or die shortly thereafter. That's what is going to happen. That's the expectation. Judah knows that. When the Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph out of the pit and they sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a young goat, and they dipped a robe in the blood. They set the robe of many clothes to their father and said, We found this. Examine it. Is it your son? Reuben is the oldest. So here he said, What am I going to do? How am I going to fix this situation? His father recognized it. It's my son. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his cloak, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. His father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites and Joseph, they took him to Egypt. They sold him to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. This is where suddenly the story breaks in chapter 38. And we turn to Judah and Tamar before we go back to Joseph in chapter 39. So Joseph's been taken down, sold to the Egyptians to become a slave. And everyone wants to know, well, what happens to Joseph? But then we interject. We interject with this situation with Judah and Tamar. But before we jump into that, let me put the map of Joseph up on the screen for you. And I want you to flip to the, the front of your books again. And I want you to put in Joseph. And so right at that same place where you ended with Abraham in Jerusalem, all right, I want you to put a, a, a triangle and put a J in the middle of it for Joseph. Maybe the triangle will also remind you of pyramids in Egypt. And then I want you to draw a line and an arrow over across the Nile to Egypt. Because that's where Joseph is taken. At the end of Genesis 37, Joseph is now in the hands of the Egyptians. map up for a while because we're going to talk about Joseph for a few minutes. What I'm going to do is I'm going to skip over chapter 38 and come back. Gary, you have a question? Uh, no, not really. They wanted to kill him, remember? Here he comes. Let's kill him. They wanted him gone. So with the map up on the screen still, and you see Joseph is now in Egypt, okay? Several things begin to transpire in the life of Joseph. You have Joseph the person. He's the prized son in chapter 37, sold at the age of 17 for 20 pieces of silver. An impulsive young man. Now he moves in chapter 39. He becomes Potiphar's servant. And here's where most people focus. The great character, the integrity of Joseph. He resists the pleas of Potiphar's wife to sleep with her. I want you to remember that in a minute when we come back to see Judah and contrast his character. 
But there's more to it than that. He's there for some time, and then shortly thereafter, Potiphar's wife, she tries again, and, and he rejects her claims. And this time his coat comes into play again, or his cloak. As he flees, he leaves behind that coat or cloak again. And this time it's going to be the evidence, again, that she reports that he tried to rape her. Last time this coat was the evidence that he'd been murdered by an animal. Now it's that he tried to abuse her, this woman. So what happens? He ends in prison. So the pride son is now in Potiphar's prison. He's there for some time. Most of you know the story to some degree. But he ends up interpreting some dreams. But he's forgotten about for years. Until the Pharaoh has a dream that can't be interpreted. And then he is brought back up. So he becomes Pharaoh's prime minister at age of 30. His integrity in Potiphar's prison moves to his ingenuity in Pharaoh's prime ministry at age 30. He says you'll have seven years of plenty and seven years of poverty from famine. During this time period, he brings in all of the, the harvests and they store them up. The pharaoh in Egypt begins to own all the lands. The people don't have money. The pharaoh buys them up, but he feeds them. Years after this, the brothers come. Joseph is now around 39. They need food. They go back home. They come back a little while later. They get some more food. Joseph keeps one of the brothers, Simeon, in, in prison. They Eventually, they bring Benjamin back. And eventually, towards the end of the story, Joseph is there, and they eat together. And eventually, the whole family is going to end up down there in Egypt. He ends up with 71 years of peace with their family, living in a place called Goshen pretty much the best place in Egypt. He dies at a ripe old age of 110 years old. That's the person of Joseph. But what's the plot line? The plot line, I look at it like this. Coats, conspiracies, and the Canaanites. I've already mentioned to you about the coats. Joseph's coat. Okay? The cloak of his birthright. The focus of attention in both the story with the brothers and the story with Potiphar's wife in chapters 37 and 39. Joseph happened to be in the field when a man happened to have Joseph's brothers go by. This happenstance, it's not happenstance, guys. It's God working behind the scenes. We're going to see in a minute in chapter 38 that Tamar's clothes are also important. Whereas Joseph's clothes, his cloak, his coat, his clothes, and the clothes of Tamar are going to play in to this situation as well. In just a moment. We're also going to see that there are many conspiracies that take place in this entire narrative from chapters 37 to 50. And we're going to see how the Canaanites play a role in this. And so with those three things in mind, I'm going to come back to these. All right? I want to go back. I want to look at the character and the plot line of Judah in chapter 38. So in Genesis 38, it says, At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. And there Judah saw the daughters of a Canaanite named Shua, and he took her as his wife, and he slept with her. Now this is only two verses into it, but you should already have your eyebrows raised. There's a whole bunch of things that are not right in this story. 
for the scientists and Judah. What's wrong with this story? First off, there's connections with the going down, and you don't see it necessarily in your translations, but chapter 37, 38, and 39 all have the phrase going down, going down to Egypt, going down in this case settled near in a Dulamite is what the Holman says, but it's going down, literally. This connects these three chapters. Many people think chapter 38 doesn't belong in here, but it does. So Judah goes there, and where does he go? He's going to marry a foreigner. But you have to understand, God had told his people not to marry the foreigners. God is giving his people the land of Canaan, and they're not supposed to marry them. In fact, they're going to drive them out. Esau had married a foreign woman and brought consternation to his parents. And here we see Judah. What does this tell us about Judah? Judah is not in to this whole plan of God. Judah is doing his own thing. Judah's not concerned with what God wants. He's not concerned with the blessings, the promised plan of God through Abraham. He is just doing his own thing. Judah sees. It's very, it's very fast-paced. He sees. He takes. He sleeps. That's what it says. He saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife. He slept with her. He saw. He took. He slept. Then in verse 3, she conceived. She gave birth. He named. Quick, quick, quick. This is years going by. He has a son named her. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named him Onan. She gave birth to another son named Sheila. All these kids, boom, boom, boom. Judah, verse 6, got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Where's she from? She's a Canaanite. We're still living with the Canaanites. We're still hanging out with them. My best friend's in a Dulamite, which is related to Canaan. She's not working in God's promised land. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. Now, you've got to understand what's going on here. This sounds crazy to you guys and to me, but it's a different culture, and there's a, the promised plan of God is at work in here also. And so if a son is married and he has no kids, in order to continue his family line, his brother would sleep with the wife, and the first child is not the brother that just slept with her. It's the dead man's child. Now, her is also the firstborn. The firstborn gets what? The blessing and the double inheritance. So, if he has an offspring, it goes to his offspring, his son. And so what do we have here? Onan is also selfish. Onan is going to enjoy the pleasure, but he is not going to allow the brother, who's now dead, to have his line perpetuated, he's going to cut off his lineage, and he's not going to allow that blessing to flow through his brother's line. God used that as evil and kills him. And so now, Judah's got two sons that are dead, and the common denominator is the woman Tamar. It doesn't enter his mind, or maybe it does, and he pushes it away. And she's not the problem, but instead he's got two wicked boys. God doesn't tell you all their problems. It doesn't tell you everything they did wrong. It just says they're wicked and God killed them. That's the point. That's all that matters. Well, he has a third son. And so the third son should go to Tamar for the same reason. But he's a little bit afraid now. So he doesn't give the third boy to Tamar. What does he say to Tamar? He sends her, sends her packing. 
Judah says to his daughter-in-law, verse 11, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, just like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. She's superstitious. She's got this fear that Tamar's got some curse on her, killing his boys. Yet he still retains authority over her, despite the fact that he sent her back home. This is embarrassing to her, to her family. It's disgraceful. She's disrespecting him. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira the Adumite went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers. You just read that, and you're like, oh, that's, that's okay. No, it's not okay. He's with his best friend, that Canaanite guy again. They're going up to the sheep shearers. They're not mourning anymore. When they sheep shear, they have a big party. It's festive. The morning clothes are off. I'm done crying. It's kind of time to go celebrate. He's going with his buddy, the Canaanite boy. Tamar was told, hey, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes. Remember the clothes? She veiled her face. She covered herself and sat in entrance. She changed her clothes. She thought, for she saw that though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? And he said, I'll send you a young goat. She said, only if you leave me something until you send it. What should I give you? Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. This is like giving your visa card your driver's license. Okay? This is what it was back then. Okay? You want me? Okay. Give me your license and give me your, give me your visa, your MasterCard. So he gave them to her and he slept with her and she got pregnant by him. And she got up and left and she removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah saw the young goat, sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, Hira, in order to get back the items, he left with the woman. He could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road? There's no cult prostitute here. So the Adulamite returned to Judah. I couldn't find her. Three months in, all of a sudden, Judah finds out she's pregnant. What does he say? He says, burn her alive. This is Judah's anger. This is Judah's uncontrolled rage at the life of his, of his whole situation here. That's in verse 24 at the end. As she was brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I'm pregnant by the man to whose these items belong. Examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? And of course, they're his. In verse 26, Judah recognized. Just like Jacob recognized Joseph's cloak. Now, Judah recognizes his own items. And here's the phrase in verse 26. Star it, ostracize it, highlight it. She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her intimately again. Right here is the turning point in Judah's life. Judah humbles himself and recognizes his sin. Judah recognizes that he has not been living for God. Judah recognizes that he has not been following what he should have been doing. Now, in our way of thinking, we don't understand this. It's a different time period. He had deprived Tamar and his sons of the blessing and of carrying on the lineage. He had disgraced her. And here, she, a foreign woman, who it would have been easier for her to go back to her family, but like Ruth, she had accepted the family and even to some degree, it looks like, the faith of the men that she had married into, and she was loyal and faithful to that family. And so she stands out as the heroine in this section. To us, we're like, 
What? No, that's craziness. She pretends to be a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. How is that honorable? That's because you have to understand what's going on. You have to understand the culture, and you have to understand what the Leverite marriage, that's what it's called, was all about. But God protecting her, raising up the family and not letting the family line die. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. She was giving birth. One of them put out his hand. The midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing this one came first. But then he pulled his hand back, and his brother came out. She said, you've broken out first, so he was named Perez. And then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. Twins. This reminds you of Jacob and Esau. Twins. Should trigger to you that that's the last time that God used a specific line was with the twins. And God was going to do that again through this line. You don't know yet that yet. I mean, we do because we know the rest of the story. Perez, Zerah. Perez is who the line of Jesus comes through that Tamar initiated. God uses that to bring Jesus Christ into the world. See, up till now, you were thinking, I know, I kind of spoiled the story for you, you're thinking, Joseph, he's the golden boy. He's going to get the blessing. But he doesn't, no. Judah gets it. See, Joseph is playing another part. A whole other part in the story. So if we move now into chapter 39 and 40, we see that Joseph is in Egypt. But with Joseph, we've looked at his person and, and partly the plot, but I want, I want to return to the plot of Joseph, the plot line. Just like the clothes of Joseph were important in two different situations. One, his supposed murder by an animal, the death by an animal, that the clothes are shown to his father. And secondly, with Potiphar's wife, so, too, Tamar's clothes become important in chapter 38 when she changes from mourning to those of a prostitute. The conspiracies, we're not even done with the conspiracies, but they run all the way through here as well. Joseph's brothers cover up the sale of Joseph to their father by pretending an animal killed him. Judah attempts to cover up the wickedness of his sons by blaming Tamar for their death in chapter 38. Tamar covers up who she really is in order to secure the promised child in chapter 38. And then we find that the wife, Potiphar's wife, covers up what really happened around Joseph, and he ends up in prison in chapter 39. Well, towards the end of the story, I'm not really sure of the motives of Joseph in this, but there's a whole lot of trickery and conspiracy when his brothers show up to get food in Egypt. He sends them back with the money. Then they come back the second time puts his cup in one of their bags and sends him back out. And then that's in Benjamin's bag. So Benjamin gets dragged back and he blames them for stealing from him when he put it in there the whole time. The other thing I want to look at is the Canaanites. So when you look at the plot line here, you've got the coats, the conspiracies, and the Canaanites. Why in the world is God moving these people into Egypt out of Canaan? See, Judah is another insight into that. They're marrying into the Canaanites. God has said, stop doing that. He doesn't want them marrying in with the Canaanites. The Canaanites are rebellious against God, and God is going to judge them. If they intermingle with them, he's going to lose the nation that he's trying to build. And so God sends Joseph ahead. This is what Joseph says at the end of Genesis. 
This is your Romans 8, 28, that God is working behind the scenes. So God sends Joseph ahead, and we think he's the golden boy, and he's going to get all the blessing. But God sends him there actually to prepare the way to get Judah out of Canaan to get him there. Because he's the one the child is going to come to. You see, they're intermarrying with the Canaanites. That's not going to be such a problem in, in Egypt. Because the Egyptians don't like shepherds. So they're not going to be attracted to him. So they get him away from the Canaanites because they can't control themselves. They get him into Egypt, and then they're going to put him in Goshen, which is prime land, prime real estate. And by the time Exodus 1 opens, which is where we'll be next week, you've got some 2 million Israelites that have multiplied. And now you have enough people for a nation. The problem then being, you've got to get back to where? Canaan, the promised land, which that's next week, right? And so... The Canaanites, one of the likely reasons, okay, that God is moving them out of there. As I mentioned, Joseph's best friend, Judah's best friend, is a Canaanite man. Both Judah and Simeon, okay, you'd have to read earlier about Simeon, had a Canaanite wife. In both cases, it's the foreign woman who's absorbed into the Israelites' tribe. And then, as I mentioned, Esau also married a Canaanite, causing much angst for Isaac and Rebekah. What is God doing? God is moving people the way he needs to for his plan to succeed. Now, we have a problem, though. Because now we're out of the land of Canaan. As I alluded to, we're going to cover that next week. But even the end of Genesis shows that they come back. Though removed from the land, both Jacob and Joseph will be buried in the land along with their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. Jacob... When leaving, he stops at Beersheba. After all of this plays out, and, and Jacob is, is finally convinced, Joseph is really alive, he's in Egypt, I'm going to go see him, and he begins to leave Canaan, and he stops at Beersheba, where God has spoken to him in the past. Why does he stop there? Because Jacob knows that he's not supposed to leave Canaan, and he's checking in with God. And God tells him it's okay to leave. They get to Goshen. Now, how, how does all this fit together? When you read through the rest of this story, we didn't cover all the chapters because we don't have time this morning. But when you read through these chapters and you see what's going on, it's so many chapters related to Joseph and how he shows his integrity, he shows his ability to manage. God, though, is the one behind all. Who gave Joseph the ability to interpret dreams? Was from God. Without his ability to interpret dreams, he would have rotted in that prison. His interpretation of dreams is what got him out of that prison and got him to be the prime minister of Egypt. And when did that happen? Just in time for those seven years of greatness to occur so that he could tell them to stock up because the seven years of famine were about to occur. Just in time so that he could prepare so that his family could be moved back out of Canaan into Egypt and be kept alive by the Egyptians. So back to Judah for a minute. Let's talk about this blessing. Let's talk about how is it that Judah, who has a child through Tamar named Perez, that's going to lead to the line of Jesus, gets this blessing instead of Joseph or one of the other brothers. 
Well, remember, who's the eldest? Reuben is the eldest, right? He's disqualified because he usurped his father, sleeping with a concubine. He tries to get the birthright back by his rescue plan of Joseph in 37, 12 and following. And then it appears that there's one last chance at bringing Simeon and, and Benjamin back home in chapter 42, verse 37. But it's really probably just another ruse in his part to gain the birthright. What does he say? He says, after Simeon is taken and put in prison in Egypt, okay, because Joseph wants to see Benjamin. And so uh, Daddy says, listen, I ain't sending Benjamin down there. Joseph's already dead. Simeon's in a prison down there. And you want to take Benjamin? I'm going to lose a third son? Not going to happen. And Reuben says this to him. He says, if I don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons. What? Now, you think, he's saying, I'm sure I'm going to bring him back. But think about it for a minute. Let's see, I've, I've lost two sons. I'm about to lose a third if Benjamin goes and I don't get him back. And so, that, yeah, let me kill my two grandsons also. Let's lose five of my kids. Does that make any sense? And so, Reuben is clutching at straws, probably, to try to regain standing in the family. Simeon and Levi, remember Simeon's in the prison now, right? Simeon and Levi are disqualified by their harshness and their overreaction to the rape of their sister. They slaughtered a whole village and hamstrung oxen. You'll see that when Judah, or um, when Jacob does the blessing at the end of the book. And so Judah, the fourthborn, becomes the recipient of the birthright. If you look with me at chapter 49, Genesis. Go to chapter 49 of Genesis, and you'll see what happens. Jacob has been brought down into Egypt. He's going to live for 17 years in Egypt. 17 years just should remind you of what? What do you say? That's how old Joseph was when Joseph went to Egypt. Jacob's going to live 17 years in Egypt. Jacob's going to bless his sons. Chapter 49 says, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around, and I'll tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Now, we don't understand this aspect of the culture either, but the blessing involved a prophetic element that God gave them. These men prophesied as, as they blessed. He says, come together and listen. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength, and the first fruits of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power. Turbulent as water, you will no longer excel because you got in your father's bed and you defiled it. He got in my bed. He's done. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed, for it is strong. Their fury is cursed. It is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. They're gone. First, second, and third sons. They're out of the will, if you, if you will. Next one, Judah. Your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. That means you'll be a conqueror. Your father's sons will bow down to you. It's interesting. Joseph said that earlier, right? 
Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches, he lies down like a lion, and like a lioness, who wants to rouse him? The scepter, the rule, will not depart from Judah, or the staff from between his feet, until he whose right it is comes, and the obedience of the people belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine, and the colt of his donkey to the choicest vine. He washes his clothes in wine, and his robes in the blood of grace. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. You say, what is all that, Kevin? Yeah, that all gets uh, apportioned to, to Jesus later on in prophecy. What you have is Judah, verse 8 through 12, prophesied these blessings. That's who Jesus comes through. I'm not going to read the rest of them, but you go on down. And, and Joseph is blessed also in verse 22 with a fruitful vine, how he remains steady. Then at the end, he's also going to bless Joseph's boys. And he reverses the blessing on them, giving the blessing to the youngest instead of the oldest. This is a common pattern. Happened all through it. And so, as you finish the reading of Genesis, and we often think that chapter 37 to 50 is all about Joseph. Joseph is to some degree a backdrop for chapter 38 which normally gets kicked under the rug because it doesn't seem to fit. But in reality, it's the prime focal point of what God is doing. So Jacob lived for 17 years longer in Egypt. He blesses his sons. He blesses Judah. And then at the very end, you see that Joseph forgives. He holds no vengeance in chapter 50, verse 19. He lives to see four generations, and he dies, and later his bones will be brought by Moses. He actually brings his father's bones when he dies back to Canaan. So you look at this, and we look at the idea of God's story and what God is doing. And we see that things aren't always what they seem. You see the slide that has Joseph's um, numbers there. I don't know if it's Joseph's timeline or something like that. Joseph's years is what it says. This will show you how long Joseph was where he was at. At 17, he was what? Yep, he was brought down. Okay? At 30, that was his age, and he was made second command, prime minister of all of Egypt. At 39, that's when his brothers came to ask him for grain. That's 22 years. Between having the dream and the dream being fulfilled. Remember, Abraham waited 25 years before he had Isaac, right? Yeah. God's kind of in the business of uh, long times of waiting before he fulfills things. He was 110 when he died. So he enjoyed 71 years of prosperity and peace with his family. In Goshen. I don't know if you would want to go through what Joseph went through, but what Joseph went through, the bad stuff, was because God had a better plan. And God was doing something on the other side of that. I don't know how.
how you look at your life. I look at mine sometimes, and I, I just wonder what in the world is going on. It seems like a big question mark. But this is where the upper story and the lower story come into play. Because Joseph, in his impulsiveness and his impishness as a 17-year-old, as he's shoving all these dreams in all his brother's faces, doesn't quite understand what's about to happen. He probably wouldn't have done that if he knew he was going to be sold to the Ishmaelites and sent to Egypt. But at the same time, he didn't know there was going to be a famine many years later either. And we don't either. And that's the hard thing about trust. But that's the sure thing about trust. God promised Abram descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He promised Abram blessings. Those who bless you will be blessed. Why did it go so well for Joseph? You see, Joseph is part of that line of blessing also. Whatever he touched was like golden. Potiphar saw it. The prison guards saw it. And they just let him do his thing. And they put him in charge. And everything went well when he was in charge. Because why? Because the text says God was with him. And God blessed him. If you go back and read the Joseph story and look at how many times it says the word God or Yahweh, it's heavily concentrated around those passages that God was doing a work in Joseph's life during that time. So the upper story and the lower story is just connecting what, what God is doing and what is going on in your own life. You can see from one of the last slides I have here is, is Jacob and Joseph being buried. And you see that they're both buried in the promised land. This is back in Canaan. And so God is he's taken them out for a little while, but he's brought them back and God is fulfilling what he said he would fulfill. Watch this recap video to help you get an idea of putting it all together. There once was a man named Abram. God made a promise. I will make you into a great nation, and all of the people on earth will be blessed through you. God changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. Exactly as God promised, Sarah became pregnant. God told Abraham to take his son up on a mountain and sacrifice him. But an angel stopped Abraham, and God provided a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. Isaac married and had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was Isaac's favorite, but Jacob wanted the inheritance. Confused, Isaac gave his blessing to Jacob and promised him the inheritance. And like his father, Jacob had a favorite son. Little did Jacob know that his favoritism would put his son, Joseph, in danger of being killed by his own brothers. Jacob had 12 sons. But his favorite was Joseph. One day, Jacob sent Joseph to check on his brothers who were working in the field. Joseph's brothers resented him, and when they saw him coming, they attacked him and threw him in a well. Then they sold their brother as a slave, took off his coat, soaked it in goat's blood, and showed it to their father, tricking him into believing a wild animal had killed Joseph. 
after, Joseph was sold to a military official in Egypt as a servant. God helped Joseph do great work, and the official was very happy with him. Joseph was very handsome, and the official's wife tried day after day to seduce him. One day, she pressured Joseph so much that he ran out of the house, leaving his coat behind. She told everyone that he tried to force himself on her. The official was furious and threw Joseph in jail. God once again helped Joseph in all he did. And eventually, he was put in charge of all the prisoners. Joseph had the special ability to interpret people's dreams. One day, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, asked Joseph to interpret one of his dreams. He dreamed that seven fat cows were eaten by seven skinny cows, and seven heads of healthy grain were eaten up by seven heads of dried up grain. God helped Joseph interpret the dream. Egypt would experience seven years of successful farming, followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh was impressed and put Joseph second in charge of Egypt. During the famine, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt looking for food. When they got there, they met with Joseph, but didn't recognize him right away. When Joseph finally told them who he was, they wept because they were sorry for what they had done. Eventually, they went and got their father, Jacob, and brought him back to Egypt. Joseph took care of his entire family, giving them property in the best part of the land where they lived for the rest of their lives. Joseph used by God? Most definitely. He was used by God to prepare and provide for that seed that was to come through the line of who? Judah. So, maybe you're still rebelling against what uh, God wants to do in your life. Judah was for a long time. Judah did his own thing. Judah went his own way. Judah took what he wanted. Judah left the family. But eventually, in time, Judah humbled himself and recognized he was wrong. And that's the turning point in his life, and that's the turning point in your life, when you recognize, through humility, that you are wrong and you're separated from God. That is when you're in a place for God to begin to pick you up, use you, and bless you. That's exactly what happened in Judah's life. And my challenge to you this morning is several fold. One is if you haven't given your life to Christ yet, what are you waiting for? Give your life to God and let him do something with it. And stop running your own life and trying to do your own thing. And the other side of that is if you're a believer and you're following after God or you're trying to follow after God, I want you to ask yourself whether or not your life is really aligned with what God is doing. You have to align your life with what God is doing. You have to decide that your plans don't matter, but God's plans matter. Maybe it's not going well for you in your life. We need to remind ourselves, sometimes daily, sometimes every minute, of that Romans 8.28 verse. That all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. There's two questions in that verse for you. Are you the called? Are you saved? And do you love the Lord? Because if you love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose, he will work things out 
doesn't mean bad things won't happen to you. Joseph still got thrown in a pit. Joseph still got thrown in prison. Joseph still got slandered and lied about. But God worked out his life. Judah still had lots of problems in his life. Judah still had to deal with his whole family that was very dysfunctional. But God began to change things in their life. I can only imagine there was a whole new level of respect between him and Tamar. As he's got these two kids that he's raising by her. The text says he never slept with her again. He understood there was limits and boundaries. He's a new man. And God wants to make you new also. Let me pray for us and then we can spend a few minutes talking about those last, last few points I just mentioned. The, screen, the, the verse up on the screen is a reminder again. It's a verse we started with in the beginning. We're his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time so we should walk in them. God's already got a game plan called the promised plan. It comes through Abraham but eventually it comes through Jesus Christ. The church is the way the pipeline for getting the gospel to the nations today. It's our responsibility to teach others about what God is doing and to live that way. Even in the everyday, boring, mundane, day-to-day details of our life. Father, we come to you this morning and I thank you for how you use Joseph. I thank you that you have a protective hand. That you protected Joseph, Lord. Even if he was a bit of a, a, a spoiled brat child, you protected him until he became a more mature man and you used him mightily to save the rest of his family and many others. I thank you that you took a man like Judah who wasn't living for you and you used somebody in his life, an unexpected person, to get him to fall to his knees before you. And then you were able to mightily use him. And we're still talking about him today in line that Jesus came to I pray, God, you do the same thing with us. You would guide and protect us. And then on top of that, that you would humble us. Help us to humble ourselves, but if we won't humble ourselves, you would humble us. Put us in a place where you can most use us. In Jesus' name, amen.